Assalamu alaikum brothers and sisters, I'm Sister B and welcome to Islamic Audio Bites. We'll be continuing to listen to the Crusades, the Mongol Scourge from islamiclegacy.org. Let's listen. Chapter 6, The Mongol Ultimatum Thirteenth-century Cairo glistened jewel-like on the banks of the Nile. The winter of 1260 had given way to spring, and the first touch of the coming summer heat hung in the air. Most of the city's inhabitants went about their daily business unaware that anything extraordinary was happening. A few others gossiped, gesturing toward the Sultan's palace and speculating on the meaning behind the strange envoy that now had the attention of Sultan Saif al-Din Qutuz and his generals. In the palace, Qutuz shifted uneasily in his chair and beheld the four men before him with a mixture of hatred and justifiable anxiety. The emissaries represented the Mongol prince Hulegu Khan, and they laid before Qutuz a letter. From the king of kings of the east and west, the great Khan, to Kutuz the Mamluk, who fled to escape our swords. You should think of what happened to other countries and submit to us. You have heard how we have conquered a vast empire and have purified the earth of the disorders that tainted it. We have conquered vast areas, massacring all the people. You cannot escape from the terror of our armies. Where can you flee? What road will you use to escape us? Our horses are swift, our arrows sharp, our swords like thunderbolts, our hearts as hard as the mountains, our soldiers as numerous as the sand. Fortresses will not detain us, nor arms stop us. Your prayers to God will not avail against us. We are not moved by tears, nor touched by lamentations. Only those who beg our protection will be safe. Hasten your reply before the fire of war is kindled. Resist, and you will suffer the most terrible catastrophes. We will shatter your mosques and reveal the weakness of your God. And then we will kill your children and your old men together. At present, you are the only enemy against whom we have to march." The Mongol ambassadors and Kutuz considered one another for long moments. Then Kutuz withdrew, commanding his Mamluk generals to follow him. The Mongols merely smiled. The impromptu council of war was a somber affair. As Kutuz's principal officers recounted the sober facts of the Mongol advance, Kutuz reflected on the situation. Hulagu Khan has proceeded from Turan with a huge army into Iran. And no one, Khalifa, Sultan, or Malik, has the ability to withstand his onslaught. Having conquered all lands, he has come to Damascus, and were it not for news of his brother's death, he would have added Egypt to his conquests too. In addition, he has stationed in this area Kitbuga Noyan, who is like a raging lion and fire-breathing dragon lying in ambush. If he attacks Egypt, no one will be able to contend with him. Before we lose all power of self-determination, we must come up with a strategy. One of the emirs spoke up. Ulagu Khan has power and might beyond description. 
At present, he holds from the gates of Egypt to the borders of China in his mighty grasp, and he has been singled out for heavenly assistance. If we go before him under amnesty, it will not be blameworthy. However, willingly to drink poison and to go out to greet one's own death are far from the path of wisdom. A human being is not a grapevine that doesn't mind having its head cut off. He does not keep his word. For with no warning, he killed Harsha, Musta Sim, Husamuddin Akka, and the Lord of Arbella, after having made promises to them. If we go to him, he will do the same to us. Kutuz replied, The land from Baghdad to Anatolia lies in ruins, devoid of farmers and seed. If we don't make a preemptive strike and try to repulse them, soon Egypt will be destroyed like the others. Given the multitudes with which he is proceeding in our direction, one of three things must be done. We must make a truce, offer resistance, or go into exile. Exile is impossible, for there is nowhere we can go other than North Africa, and a bloodthirsty desert and vast distances lie between us and there. Egypt needs a warrior as its king. If no one else will come, I will go and fight the Tartars alone. Kutuz ordered the guards to seize the envoys. The Mongols he knew considered ambassadors to be untouchable. They treated those sent to them with utmost respect and expected theirs to be treated the same. To harm one, they considered an act of unforgivable treachery. Kutuz ordered that the ambassadors be cut in half at the waist and then decapitated and their heads placed on Cairo's great Zuwila gate. There was no turning back. The Mamluks had dyed their hands with the blood of the Mongols. Egypt was now committed to war. Chapter 7 Ayn Jalut Since the Mongol horde had unleashed its terror on the entire world, the Muslim Ummah had become paralyzed with fear. The leaders of the Muslim nation could not bring themselves to confront the grotesque reality that they and their people may share the same fate as those unfortunate men, women, and children in the stories that emerged from the East. And so they simply closed their eyes and ears and pretended that all was well, and their lives of luxury and excess continued, regardless of the cost, thinking that if they appeased the Mongol armies, then they would pass them by. But the Mongols spared no Muslim. Whomever they touched died a horrible death. They believed that God had given the earth to the great Khan and his descendants. They were the kings of the world, and all must submit as slaves to their will. In their eyes, Kutuz had committed the ultimate sin. This lowly slave had the audacity to question their imperial dream. And in doing so, Kutuz had killed, no, decapitated the Mongol envoys. Did he not know that it was the custom of the Mongols never to make peace with those who killed their envoys, until they had taken vengeance on them? But vengeance or no vengeance, fleeing was not an option for Kutuz, nor was fear of the enemy. Egypt was the last frontier in the Ummah of Muhammad. The Mongols had never been defeated 
and the belief of the Mongols in their own superiority made their vengeance terrible and their assaults relentless. An aura of invincibility surrounded them. It was like they had cast a spell over the whole world. Even if the Mamluks prevailed over the Mongols in the next confrontation, there would be another, and then another. The Mongol horde from all over the world would gather together and descend on Egypt like vultures taking to wounded prey. And yet Kutuz must have known that he had some advantages. He knew how the Mongols fought. The Mongols always sought to attack first. They would send unit after unit galloping at their enemy. When they drew close to their enemy, they would let their arrows fly and then veer away to the right or the left, revealing another unit behind them that would do the same. After a unit had made a run, it would circle back for another. In this way, they would shower their enemies with arrows until their opponents would fall into relative disorganization. Then the Mongols would charge straight into them and shatter the enemy, disperse them and chase them down and slaughter them one by one. If the enemy was too strong, then they would allow the enemy to chase some of their own units until they were drawn into an ambush. This was one of their favorite tactics. But these techniques that the Mongols had learnt from the steppes of Central Asia were well known to the Mamluks as well. For they too had lived a nomadic existence before Allah had brought them to the lands of Islam. Was the Egyptian army capable of defeating the Mongols? Would the Muslims even manage to muster an army, given the divisions that existed amongst the large number of emirs in the lands of Islam? Qutuz would have to do much begging and pleading in the name of Islam to bring a worthy army to the battlefield. But Allah be praised, the sultans of the past, in their wisdom, had maintained a brigade of royal Mamluks through the years. No expense had been spared on their training, whether it be skill in horse riding, swordsmanship, lance work, archery, or any assortment of weapons. Regardless of whether they were fighting on horseback or on their feet, they were unmatched in their skill. In fact, they had been taught to work in teams, maintaining unit formations and discipline whilst charging and retreating, turning and fighting. But can the royal Mamluks win this battle for the Ummah? They would have to. The Ummah was facing extinction, and that is why he had killed the envoys of the Mongols, because there was no turning back. Battles aren't just about skill and tactics. They're about the heart and soul, discipline and morale, the will to fight, courage and fearlessness, patience in the face of adversity. These were the real weapons, and none can assist in these matters other than Allah the Almighty. Qutuz had followed in the footsteps of the great general Tariq bin Ziyad, who upon landing on Jabra al-Tariq, known today as Gibraltar, burned his ships, sending a message to his own army, there was no turning back. And there he said these historic words. O oh, my warriors, where would you flee? Behind you is the sea, before you the enemy. You have left now only the hope of your courage and your constancy. Remember that in this country you are more unfortunate than the orphans seated at the table of the avaricious master. Your enemy is before you, protected by an innumerable army. He has men in abundance, but you 
as your only aid, have your own swords, and as your only chance for life, such chance as you can snatch from the hands of your enemy. If the absolute want to which you are reduced is prolonged ever so little, if you delay to seize immediate success, your good fortune will vanish, and your enemies, whom your very presence has filled with fear, will take courage. The enormity of the situation brought about an alliance between two rival Mamluk emirs, Sultan Qutuz and Baybars al-Bunduk Dari, the emir of the Bari Mamluks. Baybars wanted desperately to defend Islam, and to that end he was willing to make peace with Qutuz, his most bitter of rival. It is late August of 1260, and the Christian Mongol Kitbuga stands in the Bekka Valley, with 20,000 Mongols drawn up in full battle order. It is time to confront the Egyptian Mamluks. Kutuz leads an army of roughly the same size through the Christian territory to Accra, southwest of the Mongol position. Baybars commands the vanguard. His unit comes face to face with a small Mongol force on long-range patrol. The Mamluks destroy the Mongol unit with ease. The war has already begun. Kitbuga hears of the Mamluk advance towards Accra. The Mongols sprint along the eastern bank of the River Jordan to meet the Mamluks approaching from the south. The Muslims make camp at Ain Jalut, the spring of Goliath, where the prophet Dawood confronted the gigantic Jalut. Here, the vast plain narrowed to a width of just five kilometers. Behind the Muslim army was a steep mountain slope. Qutuz hid the Mamluk cavalry amongst the surrounding hills. Ain Jalut was particularly suited to such a confrontation. The battle must be fought here. But the Mongols would have to be lured into the trap. They had to be caught unaware. It wouldn't be easy. This was an exceptionally delicate operation. And for that, a master tactician and a highly disciplined unit was needed. Baybars and his Bahri Mamluks took up the challenge. Baybars moved quickly to intercept Kitbuga's forces. Kitbuga saw Baybars coming. The Mongol general saw only a small number of the Egyptian army, which must have given him added confidence. He ordered the Mongols into a charge. The two armies shudder as they collide with thundering impact. The fighting is fierce and prolonged as the two sides claw at each other for hours on end. Baybars is trying desperately to keep the bulk of the Mamluks intact, but Kitbuga manages to launch another heavy assault. Baybars signals a retreat. Triumphant, the Mongols pursue, victory in their grasp. But Baybars is not fleeing. He is luring the Mongols to Ain Jalut. Baybars knows this area well. He has spent much time in this region earlier in his life as a fugitive. He leads his unit through the Bekka Valley and into Ain Jalut, the Mongols close behind. The Bari Mamluks turn around to face the enemy. From behind them emerge the bulk of the Mamluk army from their hiding places amongst the hills. 
Now the Mongols realize that they have been tricked by their favorite tactic, the feigned retreat. Kitbuga realizes the surrounding hills and the steep slope prevent him from maneuvering his army. It was a trap, and the only escape route was through the Mamluk army. And the Egyptians had grown in size. There were more Mamluks. He was at a severe disadvantage. There was only one option. They would have to go through the Mamluk army to get to the exit. This was the decisive moment. Kitbuga orders his forces to charge. The Mongol cavalry thunders across the plains, smashing headlong into the Mamluks. Kutuz is watching the left flank of his army. For a moment, it appears as if the Mamluks are holding their line, but then the left flank wavers. It was cracking from the ferocity of the attack. Kutuz can wait no longer. He charges to the center of the fighting, taking off his helmet and throwing it to the ground so the entire army of Mamluks can recognize him. He calls out to the Mamluks in the name of Islam, rallying them, urging them to remain firm in their resolve. The left flank begins to solidify. Kutuz leads a countercharge. The Mamluk left and right flank attack the center of the Mongol army. Kitbuga tries to rally his men, but his horse is pierced by an arrow and he is flung to the ground. The Mamluks capture him, dragging him to Kutuz as the battle rages on around them. Despicable man, says Kutuz, you have shed so much blood wrongfully, ended the lives of champions and dignitaries with false assurances and overthrown ancient dynasties with broken promises. Now you have finally fallen into a snare yourself. When Kitbuga hears these words, he rears up like a mad elephant, replying, Oh, proud one, do not pride yourself on this day of victory. If I am killed by your hand, says Kitbuga, I consider it to be God's act, not yours. Be not deceived by this event for one moment, for when the news of my death reaches Hulagu Khan, the ocean of his wrath will boil over, and from Azerbaijan to the gates of Egypt will quake with the hooves of Mongol horses. They will take the sands of Egypt from there in their horses' nosebags. Hulagu Khan has 300,000 renowned horsemen like Ketbuka. You may take one of them away. Kutuz says, speak not so proudly of the horsemen of Turan, for they perform deeds with trickery and artifice, not with manliness like Rostam. Kitbuga remains defiant. Then he adds, all my life I have been a slave of the Khan. I am not, like you, a murderer of my master. Kutuz orders Kitbuga executed and his head sent to Cairo as proof of victory. With Kitbuga gone, the Mongols fled in disarray to a nearby town, where they regrouped to face the pursuing Mamluk cavalry. The Mamluks smashed the remnants once again. Only a few Mongols survived by crossing the river Euphrates. When the victory was complete, Kutuz dismounted his horse and prostrated himself to Allah. The Mongols had been defeated. No, crushed for the very first time. The myth of Mongol invincibility was shattered forever. For many Mongols, the defeat at Ayn Jalud suggested that the true God in heaven must be on the side of the Muslims. Many began to question their own beliefs. Perhaps it was Ayn Jalut that triggered the first conversions to Islam. The Christian West felt humiliated. The battle at Ayn Jalut broke the spell on the Muslim nation. 
As news of the victory spread, representatives of the Mongols were executed in many cities. The Muslim populations, oppressed by their Christian counterparts due to the alliance with the Mongols, took revenge. The Christian population was fined heavily for their collaboration with the Mongols. Muslims who collaborated with the Mongols were hanged by Kutuz. While Kutuz dealt with the cities, Baybars pursued the fleeing Mongols all the way to Hama. He caught up with them at the coast, and with the assistance of the Muslim population, he exterminated them. At Hims, Baybars smashed another army. This one included thousands of fresh soldiers sent by Hulegu as reinforcements. Meanwhile, Kutuz added the strategic cities of Damascus and Aleppo to the Mamluk Empire. Chapter 8. The Revenge of Baybars After Salahuddin Ayyubi, no name cast fear into the hearts of the enemies of Islam like that of Rukanuddin Baybars al-Bunduk Dari. Baybars like most Mamluks, was of Turkish origin. He was born in the southern Russian steppes amongst the Kipchak tribes. This tribe was a victim of the first wave of Mongol attacks in the early 1200s. Mongol generals Subudai and Batu Khan ravished the steppe region where the Kipchak lived, subjugating them and absorbing them into the Mongol Empire. Eventually, the tribe abandoned their homeland, seeking asylum under the Turkoman tribal chief named Anas Khan. But just as the tribe settled into their new home, Anas Khan betrayed their trust, attacking the tribe and enslaving many of the Kipchak. Baybars was only 14 years old when he was sold into the slave markets of Syria, but his remarkable features caused much anxiety and consternation amongst his potential masters. It wasn't his towering stature nor his husky voice, but the contrast between his dark skin and blue eyes that made him stand out. Baybars was first sold for only 40 dinar by his first master, but then he was promptly returned on account of a small white spot, a cataract in one of his eyes. He was then offered to a prince in Hama, but the prince's mother dissuaded her son from purchasing Baybars on account of something evil in his eye. Ultimately, he was purchased in Hama by Adakin al-Salihi al-Bunduktar, an Egyptian emir who was temporarily under arrest in a mosque for some manner of mischief. In this way, Baybars took the designation of al-Bunduktar as his own. It so happened that his master was later imprisoned and dispossessed of all of his property by the Egyptian sultan of the time. Baybars was placed in the ranks of the Bahri Regiment, where he attracted much attention due to his martial abilities. The events of the Seventh Crusade brought about the rise of Baybars. Although he was only 21 at the time, Baybars fought in the street battles of Mansurah, where he distinguished himself amongst his peers. When the last of the Ayyubids, Turan Shah, decided to side with the invading crusaders and eliminate the Mamluks out of fear that they may one day challenge his power, it was Baybars who invaded his tent, naked sword in hand. Whether it was the hand of Baybars that dealt the fatal blow to Turan Shah is unclear, but he was undoubtedly at the heart of the coup that brought the Mamluks into power. However, at that time, divisions amongst the Mamluks brought another powerful figure to the fore. Kutuz was a royal Mamluk, one of the personal guards of the first Mamluk sultan, Ibak 
and not from the Bahri regiment. During the transition from the Ayyubids to the Mamluks, Qutuz had killed the emir of the Bahris on instructions from his master. The Bahris fled Egypt, fearing they would be wiped out by Ibak. Thus, Qutuz and Baybars became bitter enemies. However, upon facing the prospect of a full-scale confrontation with the Mongols, Qutuz invited Baybars to join him. Working together, the two generals achieved great success at Ain Jalut, but inside, enmity was still simmering unabated. It so happened that a group of Mamluks instigated a plot to kill Qutuz. The plot was successful. The Mamluk army did not hesitate to proclaim Baybars Sultan, as they considered him their de facto leader. It was Baybars that had dealt the first blow to the last Ayyubid, Turan Shah. That is it for the Crusades, the Mongol Scourge. Hope you're enjoying the story. Can I ask that you leave a review and rating wherever you listen and to share the podcast with your family and friends. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and we're also on YouTube as a voice-only channel. Do join our Islamic Audio Bites community on Facebook and Instagram and follow me on Twitter. We've also got a website. Please do check it out at islamicaudiobites.com. If you'd like to contact me directly, please do so at sisterb007 at gmail.com. As always, hope your day is full of goodness. Assalamu alaikum.